Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Somehow the school year is more than halfway over and school districts continue to shift their schedules because of the coronavirus. Manchester Public Schools went fully remote for a day to accommodate staffing shortages after a COVID vaccine clinic over the weekend. While teachers, school staff, and students of a certain age can now be vaccinated, as well as the general population, other challenges in education remain. Coming up where we live, how has the pandemic affected the teaching profession? A recent New York Times story found enrollment in teaching programs has dropped in the last year. It's a trend that started before the pandemic. We'll talk to the leader of Connecticut's largest teachers union about his concerns over teacher recruitment and retention. That conversation just ahead. First, just a few days ago, Connecticut opened COVID vaccine appointments to any resident over 16 years old. We want to check in to see what the state has been doing to address disparities among those who've been getting the vaccine. Joining us now are two Connecticut Public Radio reporters on Zoom, Nicole Leonard. She covers health and health care for Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. And Frankie Graziano is here. He's a reporter for Connecticut Public. Hi, Frankie. Hi, Lucy. Nice to talk to you again. We'd love to hear from our listeners uh, with how their vaccine hunt is going. Are you uh, refreshing your browsers using multiple devices? Or maybe you've already gotten the shot. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Frankie, I'll start with you. Just a few days ago, uh, everyone 16 years old and older can now uh, find uh, or try to search for an appointment, a COVID vaccine. So I wanted to hear what you've been hearing in terms of accessibility, for, especially for the underserved communities that we've been focused on. Yeah, and on the very day vaccine eligibility opened up to Connecticut residents aged uh, 16 to 44, I was in a Walmart parking lot in Hartford and there were 200 people waiting in a line. It's wrapped around, you know, that access road to front spaces of a parking lot. They're there, they're Hartford residents heading into a tent to get vaccinated. And an appointment wasn't actually required. My editor, Harriet Jones, you know Harriet, and I call these vaccines without red tape. Nice. This entire time we've followed inequities in vaccine distribution. I've been constantly uh, checking in with officials in Hartford. They've been saying, the refrain has been that appointments, online signups mainly, present a barrier to shots in the arms. So this Walmart clinic was first set up to address this problem. One of the people in line I talked to was 33-year-old Ruth Fortune. I'm just very happy to see how diverse this line is. It's representative of Hartford's population, which is nice. Ruth did follow up with a good point on the pop-up nature of these clinics, something I didn't think about. She said it'd be nice if they were more permanent and happen at the same location so that as people hear more about them, information on how to find them doesn't change. That is a good point, as we hear about different clinics that are popping up around the state. Uh, Nicole, I wanted to turn to you when we think about uh, who has been vaccinated, who's been able to access appointments. So what has the data shown us? 
Well, it, it took a beat to get the data out first. It wasn't um, immediate. So we weren't sure right at the beginning who was getting vaccines. Um, eventually it did come out, uh, more data started coming out. And we did notice that there were disparities among people based on their race and ethnicity. And what that means is uh, early data showed that uh, our residents of color were getting vaccinated at uh, lower rates than our white residents. Um, I would note that our uh, Native American population actually did very well. It, it, it has been doing very well in vaccinating um, our Native American residents in this state. But um, as of right now, the gaps are beginning to close. Um, and we see these early disparities across all the age groups, right? And uh, we are seeing them beginning to close because obviously as weeks go on, more and more people are going to become vaccinated. And once they're vaccinated, you know, that's it. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see how it how it continues going forward and how long that will take until everybody each, you know, all races and ethnicities um, reach the same coverage levels. Can we talk more about equity? We know when the state changed its rollout um, and wanted to focus mostly on age, uh, the state said this would be more equitable. But this was something that we heard in the Black and Latinx communities. They were concerned that with an age-based approach that you're, this, it's not going to be as equitable as it could be. Can you talk about um, how you've been hearing from experts on now that we're hearing, Frankie even mentioned, there are now clinics popping up where you don't need an appointment. You just need to show up. Uh, that seems to be a better approach. Right. Well, at first, when they announced the age-based rollout, it was a very different from what uh, we had been hear hearing over the weeks were that, you know, coming up after uh, healthcare workers and, and first responders that um, the state was going to take into account people with chronic health conditions um, and who were working certain uh, frontline essential jobs. And so that completely got nixed in favor of this age-based strategy. Um, and the concern that we were hearing most among uh, leaders and experts, uh, health equity experts, is that when it, it the, the sense of the strategy is that most deaths did occur among the oldest ages, among all races and ethnicities. So there is some, you know, reason to that, to the age-based strategy. But the concern was that um, our oldest Black and Hispanic residents, for example, in Connecticut, are younger than our white residents. And so it leaves less of them eligible for those early weeks where they were beginning to include, you know, the 75 plus, the 65 plus. Um, and it also means that some of our Black and Hispanic residents uh, were getting infected with COVID-19 and having severe illnesses, but they were younger. Um, because maybe they had they had a chronic health condition that you know complicated their illness, or uh, they had other factors and and um, other things that were really contributing to uh, their likelihood of getting infected. And so this was really concerning when the vaccine uh, announcement came out. They were worried that um, that younger people wouldn't get access to these vaccines um, quick enough. And, and that Nicole has Leonard. played out a bit. You're hearing Nicole Leonard, health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Frankie Garciano is also here. He reports for Connecticut Public as we talk more about the rollout of, of the COVID-19 vaccine across our state. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter 
at where we live. Uh, Jason's calling in. So, Jason, uh, how'd it go for you? Uh, you know, it didn't go too horribly because, you know, obviously I already got my first shot, so I'm pretty ahead of the game. Um, but, man, I got to say it's difficult to use the uh, state website to book an appointment. <laughs> You're talking about VAMS? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That and even before, like, uh, just getting onto the website at all. I couldn't find uh, an appointment, like, anywhere within, like, 100 miles of me. But for some reason, one of my uh, one of my clients was able to find, like, four right next to me and actually booked one for me. So wow. I, I do you guys have any idea of, like, what the discretion is between that? Because we were looking at the same site. That's a good question. I'm going to pivot to Frankie Graziano because I know, Frankie, on, on social media, you've been putting out a lot of advice for people who are struggling to get appointments. But Jason brings up a good point. Uh, he was having trouble, but someone he knew had no trouble at all. So what is the, the magic sauce, so to speak, to get an appointment? Yeah, let's talk anecdotally. Uh, I've been saying before this, I've been paying attention to this for a long time. So I've been saying before this to folks that I knew and people that were a part of the other rollouts, the earlier rollouts, you want to make sure you get an appointment through VAMS because at least you have something on the books. And back then it was a little more scarce. Uh, I myself was not able to make a VAMS appointment throughout this process. And that was pretty frustrating for me knowing this whole situation. Uh, I don't know very many people who actually did book uh, an appointment through VAMS. And I know the state has said through uh, through one of the governor's comms uh, people, the comms director said that they haven't exactly given up on VAMS, even though it sounds like they have. But they're trying to say that it's one of many places to get an appointment. And Jason, I think that holds true. Uh, continue to look maybe at VAMS, but also at, at, at a lot of other places. You can follow my social media, where we live social media. There's some tricks that are out there, including how to access a CVS, hunting CVS the Alabama way. Uh, we could talk about that <laughs> more, uh, but I imagine you don't have that much time. But anyway, Lucy, there's, way, there's a lot of uh, different places folks can get an appointment. And uh, the governor's uh, staff is saying that as well, because VAMS may not be rising to the occasion at this point. Mm. And Nicole, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. I mean, personally, I did uh, register through VAMS, but I got my first shot through CVS. And so there's a lot of different approaches uh, to finding a vaccine. But what have you been hearing about the accessibility uh, for residents? Yeah, it's it's different in every state. It's really interesting to see what people are going through and what they have to do to get an appointment. And Lucy, right now, what we're talking about really is online access, right? When we're talking about VAMS, when we're talking about CVS or any of the other dozen or so websites that belong to individual health organizations, you could go on and and do it through your health provider and other pharmacies and, and community health centers and all things like that. Um, we're talking largely about online access. And so, you know, people are struggling with that, but then there are also people who can't do the online signups because the online signups might be only in English or they don't have internet access or they struggle with Wi-Fi and stuff. So, you know, you can only imagine how much, how even more difficult it is for some of the people who can't even access the all of these sites to try and find an appointment. And just quickly, Lucy, the point I want to make is that what Nicole's saying rings true because if I, somebody who's plugged into the process, can't make an easy appointment through the state, I can't imagine how anybody else can. I know early on, uh, Nicole, also when we think about um, access, uh, the drive-through testing sites that popped up, uh, again, at Rensselaer Field, I believe, uh, that's great, but for people who didn't have cars, not so accessible. 
Yeah, not really accessible if you have a, if you don't have a car for a drive-through site, right? Um, and yeah, that was a big problem. And a lot of people who live in in cities, for example, don't own cars. Um, and and a lot of people, the populations of our major cities are a lot of are made up of a lot of black and brown communities. So you're again seeing that those health inequities, even just to access the vaccines but there are other things not only you know car you know drive problems with the drive-throughs but also you know do people you know they're asking do i need insurance to get a vaccine um do i need an id an identification card to get a vaccine um and we know our uh some of our undocumented population and our non-english population these are really big concerns for them uh, before Frankie uh, needs to head out, uh, I wanted to ask you, Frankie, in terms of messaging, we spent a lot of time talking about access, but early on we heard from the governor and others uh, when we talk about communities that are underserved that there was vaccine hesitancy. When you spoke to health experts, what did they think about that messaging? I can't help but see like a giant imaginary red flag when I hear the words vaccine hesitancy. It just imagine, or just a, it just uh, has to do with who says it. And at the same time, the vaccine's being rolled out, the state's going around asking people of cover, color to overcome uh, vaccine hesitancy. And there was one such incident where the governor was speaking at a church in Bloomfield. It was actually right before he got vaccinated, asking black people in particular to step up and get vaccinated. So I hit up a University of Connecticut researcher, Dr. Wisdom Powell. She said, we're talking over communities of color right now, and that there's this presumption about what members of those communities think about the vaccine. One example Wisdom used was about uh, how Black people are constantly reminded about the dreadful Tuskegee experiments in times like these. State officials have brought that up too, including at that news conference. And that sort of ignores the point that systemic racism in healthcare still exists today. Uh, in this regard, she also accused the state of pushing a meta-narrative, presuming that the lag in vaccination rates has to do with hesitancy and not access. What she's recommending, let's talk about moving this forward, education and remember uh, this is something uh, carmen and i talked about your producer before the show if there is hesitancy that doesn't mean a person won't get the shot they may have questions that need to be answered also instead of this age-based approach the state went with to inoculate residents she says maybe officials could have taken a more intersectional approach vaccinating for age and vulnerability i mean they did reinvent the wheel a couple of times on eligibility groups and uh you never know if they could have done it again at, at midstream Mm. Yeah, and that's Frankie Graziano, reporter for Connecticut Public. Frankie, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Lucy. And Nicole Leonard is still with me. She's health reporter for Connecticut Public. Uh, we've talked about, again, uh, this switch to age-based, and a lot of people are getting vaccinated. Connecticut um, is leading, or among the states, that's leading in the overall vaccinating uh, its residents, but there are still disparities. I'm wondering when we, when we talk about uh, the switch, Nicole, uh, there was concern among people in the disability community about, or people with comorbidities, that they would have to wait longer and so what are you hearing in terms of access for them? Yeah, that's that has been one of the, um, you know, consequences of going to a, a very strict age-based rollout, I would add, um, because, uh, and like Frankie sort of had, had left it off, it, it very much cut, it, there was a strict line of we were only going to do this by age. There was, uh, they the state, the state and the governor made it clear that there were going to be uh, no exceptions. Um, and so that sort of 
eliminates the possibility of doing this by an intersectional approach, right? To to do it by age and consider someone's, you know, you could still do it by age, but consider some vulnerabilities, especially in some marginalized groups of people, especially in underserved communities and communities of color. And so, um, you know, when we talk about people who were, uh, for example, in the disability community, people with comorbidities, they really were looking forward to a chance to get this vaccine. Um, not only, you know, some of these people, they work frontline jobs and so they are at risk of contracting the virus. Some of these people have been home for over a year and because of their condition, um, they have really very strictly avoided going to public places. Um, people haven't been, you know, I've heard people who haven't gone to a grocery store even in, in over a year. Um, um, out of fear for contracting the coronavirus. And so there's also the a mental health aspect to this as well, telling people that, you know, who are looking forward to getting that vaccine, vaccine that they may have to wait even longer, especially the younger people in these groups, right? They are among the last uh, to get it, which they can now, but they, they have certainly had to wait. And we're hearing from the state, again, more doses coming online each week. And so hopefully uh, for someone who might have tried to get an appointment, Nicole, and their first appointment may not be till June, if they try again, they might be able to get an earlier appointment? Yes. Um, yes. If you if you went on to get uh, try and get a vaccine appointment, you know, in the first 24, 48 hours um, online or over the phone, there were long waits over the phone, um, then you might have been scheduled out pretty far in advance. I know just anecdotally, some of the appointments offered through VAMS were quite far into the future. Um, but the state is getting more and more doses. And so the appointments that are out right now, they're based on the doses that the state and, and the providers in Connecticut, the vaccinators, uh, know they will be getting in the foreseeable future. So as more doses come into the state, uh, the vaccinators, which are the pharmacies and the health organizations, they're able to add more appointments than they would originally do so uh, before. And that happens, that can happen on a weekly basis. And so if uh, people haven't yet been able to to get an appointment you know definitely keep it up um there might be earlier ones that that pop up it doesn't mean that if you heard from somebody that their appointment is scheduled not scheduled until the end of the month or in may it doesn't mean that you know if you go and schedule an appointment it'll be further out from there you, you could get an appointment earlier mm. diana's calling in from canton diana what's been your experience i've had varied experiences. I've had um, challenges and I have had an ease. So first of all, I want to say thanks, Lucy, for your show. Your voice is always so soothing. Love listening to you in the mornings. Oh, thank um, you. Our, our, um, my spouse was able to get it through the CVS um, system. I was up all hours of the night trying to get in whenever they load their appointments. I would wake up early in the morning trying to get in. I tried the Alabama thing I heard about, but it took me to an error glitch. Um, so I wasn't able to get in and navigate through that way. But eventually we got one and we all cheered like we won the Powerball. It was kind of funny <laughs> like that we got our appointment scheduled. Um, so, but then when it opened up for our adolescent, um, so we have an account set up for every single system there is. We have a VAMS, we have a CVS, we have a Walgreens, we have a Hartford Healthcare, we have it all. 
Um, and then with my adolescent, I was actually able with quite ease once I set up through Hartford Healthcare the MyChart Plus to access a location that I didn't realize had existed, um, you know, in the next town over, and she has an appointment coming up. So it's been one of each experience. Um, you know, I, I say to the kids, this is when I, they saw me trying to get in and trying to get an appointment scheduled, and I'd say, you know, this is an exercise of perseverance. Like, just never give up. There's a lot of options. You just got to keep trying. I myself am actually a person that is an, a vaccinator working at the clinics. I'm going to be working at the Vaxathon with Trinity Health coming up. And, um, you know, everyone who's coming through the clinics is just, they're so grateful. And I haven't really experienced a lot of people being all that frustrated. A few said things, but I will admit that the computer stuff, you know, I'm computer savvy, and it, it's trying. Well, Diana, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for helping at that Vaxathon. Uh, we know people as well that are signed up through Journey Health. That's this weekend in, in Hartford. Uh, I, Nicole, it is interesting to hear Diana talk again about all the different approaches for people to try to find a vaccine. But once you're in line, once you are there, the feeling of relief that comes over you, that you've now had the opportunity to get this vaccine. We're all waiting for that. Yeah. And, and it just makes me, you know, just on a personal level, uh, I was very, very lucky to, you know, snag an appointment early on. And there was that huge sense of relief um, to, you know, get a, whether you're getting the one shot dose or the first dose, but it also made me think more about the people who haven't gotten this opportunity yet. And, um, you know, I really, really thinking about them and, um, you know, what ways, what things are being done now to really get to people who, and we know, want the vaccine. So many people want the vaccine. Um, you know, even if there is some hesitancy, um, it's really, it's, it's not the main player uh, in the vaccine rollout right now. There are more people who want to get the vaccine. They just are having trouble accessing it. And so I, you know, are often thinking about them and, and when it's going to be their chance to feel that same relief. And Nicole, uh, bef before we let you go and just moving forward, when we think about how the state's trying all these different approaches now uh, to reach people, especially in underserved communities, high need zip codes, uh, what are you hearing about those approaches going door to door to sign people up? Or as Frankie mentioned, having more clinics where you don't even need an appointment, you just show up. Yeah, a lot of the individual health organizations and especially I will say the community health centers in this state have from early on and in the beginning really noticed the problems of people accessing the vaccine, especially for their patients. Community health centers serve some of the um, people who are lower income, um, people who do live in underserved communities. And so they were noticing the problems early on. And so they have really pivoted and shifted to different strategies to reach people. They've stopped use, some of them have stopped using VAMs completely because um, VAMs were booking uh, appointments for people who were living in, in towns and, and places far, far away from where they were actually situated. So they couldn't even get people across the street appointments. And so some of those strategies, they were going, they, people started going door to door, knocking on doors and asking people in certain 
neighborhoods, hey, have you gotten a vaccine? Are you interested? Do you have questions about it? Can I book you an appointment right now? Um, there are uh, lately uh, FEMA, which is um, the federal uh, government, FEMA came in with a specialized uh, vaccine trailer that is sort of doing a tour across the state in different cities um, and towns that are high on that, um, that are high need um, and trying to provide another access point for people, um, including walk-up appointments that you don't have to schedule. And so there are things that are being done. Um, but right now, Lucy, I'm going to be honest that, you know, the whole point of health equity in this vaccine rollout was to sort of get these things right earlier on weeks ago. And so right now we are playing catch up. Um, like I mentioned before, the vaccine coverage rates by race and ethnicity earlier on indicated that white residents had a higher coverage rate. And so a lot of other um, people, other groups are playing catch up. And that's sort of more of the same of what we've seen in the history of healthcare, which is um, other groups of people playing catch up. And so a lot of people had hoped that some of these solutions and services happened much earlier on. That's Nicole Leonard, health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to pivot now and talk after the break about how the pandemic will cause uh, further declines in teacher recruitment and retention. You can join that conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In the last year, school leaders had priorities they'd never needed to consider before, like getting adequate PPE and then demanding vaccinations for teachers and other school staff. They became eligible last month and COVID-19 clinics are continuing. Later this month, the state plans on special clinics with the Pfizer vaccine for students 16 years and older. But there are other pressing challenges that remain for education in the pandemic and potentially in the years that follow. Joining us now on Zoom is Jeff Leake. He's president of the Connecticut Education Association. This is the largest teachers union in our state. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Lucy. We spent a, a lot of uh, conversations talking about uh, the importance of, of vaccinating uh, all residents, especially uh, teachers uh, who uh, many have been teaching uh, in person or some type of hybrid uh, schedule uh, since the beginning of the school year. So tell us where things stand when you look at your membership. How many teachers have been able to get the vaccine? It's it's constantly rising uh, across the state. Uh, some districts are just about done with their second shot. Uh, those of them that did uh, the two shot variety uh, and a number of our folks have done the uh, Johnson and Johnson, which is a one shot. So I, I don't have specific numbers, but I, I know we're getting well up into probably 75, 80% right now that are at least approaching uh, the completion of the vaccine uh, rollout. 
and and I, I have to say, I think I think all the folks who helped get us to do it this way, uh, you know, instead of going through what your previous guests were just talking about, you know, the crazy uh, uh, system that's in place to try to find a, a place to get uh, get the vaccine. So uh, we, we did it a lot more efficiently than that in the school systems across Connecticut. Appreciate the governor's office and the State Department of Education and all other state uh, stakeholders who helped get that uh, make that happen. So having one central place for teachers within a certain school district to be vaccinated versus driving all over the state, that has helped uh, get the numbers that that you're looking for, more people vaccinated. Absolutely. Um, You know, the the, the downside of that is, as you just talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, sometimes that means that... um, a school system has to go all virtual uh, because uh, everybody got the shot on Saturday or Sunday or something like that, and uh, and they're all feeling a little down. I I know uh, for me the second shot uh, w- was uh, a little bit more uh, <laughs> something that knocked me out a little bit differently than the first one. First one was no problem. Second one, uh, yeah, I wasn't feeling so good for a couple of days, but I'm I'm feeling fine now. Mm-hmm. You and your colleagues spend a lot of time, again, uh, trying to get teachers on these priority lists to be vaccinated. Uh, now that they are eligible, are there efforts to reach members who may still be hesitant? We knew from the beginning that well over 80, probably close to 90 percent of our members were ready uh, to get the vaccine as soon as it was available. Uh, we are continually making, trying to make sure that Number one, they are able to get it, but secondly, that uh, if there's some uh, uh, hesitancy, that we're definitely uh, encouraging them to, to go forward. It definitely gives people peace of mind um, um, who've chosen to get this vaccine, that they are vaccinated, especially when we know that school kids under the age of 16 are not eligible yet. And we're seeing this rise in variants uh, around our state, uh, this virus mutating where 40 percent of positive tests uh, just the other week uh, reported in the Connecticut Mirror were this variant um, out of the UK. And so when we see cases rising in particular parts of the state, Uh, more of these variant cases. Uh, How do you feel the rest of the school year is going to go, Jeff? Clearly, we cannot give up on all the protocols that are in place in order to get us to the end of the school year with everybody being as safe and healthy as possible. As again, it was mentioned previously, children don't seem to uh, get the effects of the of the virus as much, but nonetheless, um, uh, it, it does affect them in many of them in some ways or another. So <clears throat> we we don't want to minimize any of the protocols that have been in place. And in some places, actually, we want to kind of reemphasize that that's important. For example, I'm hearing more and more from teachers that some students are getting a little bit uh, too relaxed about their mask wearing. Uh, there's still some concern about the setup of lunch uh, uh, in, in some districts, but 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 again, uh, I think if everybody moves forward, thinking of all of the things that are in place uh, or should be in place uh, for uh, both teachers and our students uh, and all educators and staff, uh, then then we can get we can get to the end of this year safely. Mm. I'd mentioned that the governor has announced doing specific drives for the the COVID uh, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine for students 16 years and older at high schools. Do you think that's a good idea, Jeff? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm one of those people who believes that 
you know, if we're going to get ahead of this, the more people that are uh, vaccinated, the better off we're going to be, the better chance we're going to have to defeat this virus and be able to somewhat get back to uh, a normal existence. You're hearing Jeff League, president of the Connecticut Education Association. This is the state's largest teachers union. Just to get an update on how where things stand in relation to vaccinating all teachers and staff uh, within our state. But coming up after the break, we wanted to talk more about the pandemic's impact on teachers and the teaching profession. That conversation coming up. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney joins us to answer our questions and yours. We hope that you tune in for that conversation. That's tomorrow. Now, right now, my guest on Zoom is Jeff Leake, president of the Connecticut Education Association. This is the state's largest teachers union. I wanted to talk more about how the pandemic is impacting teachers, also the teaching profession. Uh, Jeff, uh, you've been in the education field for, for many years. Uh, so, you know, recently uh, there's been a trend where enrollment in teaching programs um, has been declining. And I just was curious what you've been hearing from your membership in terms of of retaining teachers, given all that's happened, uh, the stress and the emotions uh, in this pandemic and the, the challenges in the classroom. Absolutely. Uh, I've been uh, for many years is a is a polite way of saying I've been around for one heck of a long time. So uh, appreciate that. But uh, clearly, without a doubt, this has got to be the last year and a half now almost uh, has got to be one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging time to be an educator uh, in in anywhere. Uh, but the bottom line is that in, in, in so many of our districts, teachers have really kind of stood up. They've gotten out there. They've done the best they can, uh, given, in some cases, extremely limited resources. Uh, but, but the bottom line is it, it is the, stre- the words you use, stress, uh, is, is huge right now. Uh, and, and we want to make sure that, yes, we want to get to the end of the year, but we want to make sure that we start out next year in a much better place with it, with a with a instructional model that works for both teachers and students. Uh, and, and what I'm talking about there is making sure that we get as many, if not all, students back in the classroom, back in their schools, uh, and kind of say, we know that <clears throat> online learning, virtual learning, whatever you wanna call it, hybrid learning, all those different uh, variances uh, weren't working uh, as well as uh, as we hoped they would. But the bottom line is we did the best we could given the, the health uh, situation. And therefore, uh, let's, as I, I love uh, uh, President Biden's phrase, let's build back better uh, for next year and the next years ahead. So there was a time and a place for remote instruction moving forward. You, your membership believes that it's in class, in person. We need to get back to that model. Absolutely. And, and, mm-hmm. and again, we understand, as I said previously, safety protocols are going to still be important for at least next year and possibly a couple of years as we try to defeat this virus. But, but we also know that uh, the connection 
between educators and, and their students uh, just doesn't make it in terms of online uh, virtual learning. Uh, we need those kids back in, in their classrooms as much as possible. Uh, and, and, uh, and again, uh, we're hoping that close to 100% of our, of our kids are, are back in their classrooms. Uh, regarding you know, what it's done to the teaching profession, clearly uh, we've had, I, I've had uh, educators uh, uh, emailing me regarding, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if I can make it to the end of this year, or you know what, I think this is gonna be it. Uh, I am urging all of our experienced educators to say, hey, uh, don't go out on a downside, go out on an upside, go out on a year that's going to be much better than the year we've been through. So uh, we're hoping that uh, our experienced educators hang in there and, and make sure that uh, we're providing the best instruction we can for uh, Connecticut students. Mm -hmm. But it's been a tough year for aspiring educators. That's that's the word we use in, uh, in the National Education Association. Those are folks in our college prep programs They've been disappointed because they have not over this last year been able to get the kind of in-school, in-class uh, experiences that normally they would get. Uh, and, and, and they were disappointed in that, but we'll, we'll try to figure it out uh, and, and help them move forward as best we can. But the problem is a much longer problem than a pandemic problem. Uh, well, I wanted starting to... Jeff, I wanted to mention um, the New York Times reported recently, just in the last year, when we talk about aspiring teachers, 19% uh, of undergraduate, 11% of graduate teaching programs saw significant drops in enrollment. You just mentioned uh, this is not new. And so talk a little bit more with us about, you know, why fewer people are interested in becoming teachers. Unfortunately, it, it's a, been a battle that's been going on for some time. It, easily, we can trace it back to uh, 2010, for example. And over that time period, nationwide, uh, enrollment in teacher uh, uh, education programs at the college level has declined by more than a third. Uh, the United States average is about 35%. Connecticut's right there in the middle uh, of that as well, pretty close to uh, 35, actually a little over 35% over uh, the last uh, 10 years or so. What we're seeing uh, in the enrollment figures that I looked at just yesterday in our uh, state college system uh, is that um, that decline is is relaxing a little bit uh, and, and it's not, you know, continuing to be as steep, uh, but clearly uh, it's a continuing problem. More importantly, it's a problem in terms of making sure that we diversify our workforce. So, for example, um, you know, uh, across across Connecticut, uh, still um, uh, we're not attracting uh, teachers of color uh, into our profession in the in the way that we need to. Uh, we're doing something about that in our association. Uh, my vice president Tom Nicholas uh, is working with locals to. Uh, to fund and, 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 and support what we call future educators of color, reaching right down to high schools and some cases even middle schools to say, uh, you know what, you, you might wanna consider uh, teaching as a profession. Again, <laughs> this last year uh, has proven to be a difficult sell, <laughs> if you will, uh, because uh, our students are seeing what, what teachers have gone through this year, but, but we can turn that around if we work hard at it. You mentioned the, the decline in enrollment uh, for teaching programs um, probably started around 2010. Why, why 2010? What were some of the factors? 
Well, we were just coming out of the, uh, I, I, we don't call it a depression, the Great Recession. Yes. A and um, so uh, 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 what we saw in a lot of cases were uh, school boards cutting their budgets, uh, laying off teachers. Uh, uh, we, we were concerned about the teacher loss here in Connecticut, but it happened across the country. And in some cases, especially over this time period, in some parts of the country, the marginalizing, that's the kindest word I can use, of the teaching profession by some uh, thinking that just about anybody can walk into a classroom and, and, and deal with 25 or 30 kids uh, has become <clears throat> um, something of a narrative that just doesn't work. We know that given the trauma and the social emotional state of, of today's students, our teachers need to be trained better than they ever have been before. They need to walk into classrooms ready, ready to deal with the students that are in front of them and they need the best training they can get. So marginalizing, uh, you know, the teaching profession, claiming that just about anybody can do it. And, and you know, I hate to bring this up. I know it sounds like a broken record for us, but the bottom line is uh, teacher salaries do not yet uh, uh, rise to the level of other college graduates uh, in, and uh, that, that has got to do something about it. In, in some of the worst states, I'll, I'll pick out Oklahoma, for example, uh, they, they, they've lost uh, just a tremendous amount of teachers and their teacher enrollment is, is, way, is like almost, almost down to nothing. And in Connecticut, we're, we're doing okay in terms of, of retaining teachers, but you'd mentioned there's this effort to uh, diversify uh, who's entering this profession. Uh, but I feel like that conversation's been ongoing for, for many years here, Jeff. It has. It has. And I know uh, I, I applaud the State Department of Education. Uh, they've initiated some programs. Again, we've been doing the same thing. We've been talking uh, in our high schools, uh, especially uh, to uh, students of color to say, you know, you might want to consider this. It's, it's hard sometimes to make that case, however, because, again, what you're looking at is they, they see their own version of, you know, maybe teacher isn't respected as much as should be, uh, teacher isn't paid as much as others. Again, we have, we have salary levels in the state of Connecticut, for example, that, you know, begin in the low 40s. Uh, and, and we have, uh, you know, and, and we have some excellent, you know, at the end of your career salary, salary numbers as well. But in some cases, it takes teachers 20 to 22 years or so to get to their highest level of, of pay in, in our school district. So all of this works against saying to uh, kids in high school, yeah, think about coming into education. But we're still mm -hmm. trying. <laughs> I think one of the, I guess, silver linings in this pandemic is... I mean, anecdotally, I, I know personally that having more respect for what teachers do each and every day. And so when you talked earlier about uh, retaining uh, teachers, the ones that are worried about how are they going to make it to the end of the year, what, what about resources, Jeff, in terms of supporting teachers, providing that extra support beyond just making sure that the students are meeting whatever standard by the end of the year? Such an important, such an important uh, uh, thing to be considering. We know that Connecticut is one of the most unequal states uh, in the nation, and 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 yet we have resources here in this, in Connecticut that we could be using to solve some of our not only educational problems but community problems as well. So um, we're looking to make sure that the governor and the legislature step up. 
Uh, we're not looking to uh, see uh, ed, uh, funds from the federal uh, folks uh, supplant uh, um, those funds that should be coming from our locals and uh, the state of Connecticut. We're, we're trying to do the best we can. But unfortunately, I mean, again, I was talking to a teacher of the year uh, from one of our uh, less resourced communities who was talking to me about how uh, in many cases she tells her students to turn off their cameras because the bandwidth is so is so bad mm -hmm. that if they do that, at least they may be able to hear the audio part of what she's trying to do. Uh, that, that's, and yet in other places, you know, a, a great uh, a great experience over the past years in terms of the best we could do. Uh, for distance learning. So, um, yeah, we need to address the inequities in Connecticut. Uh, again, I appreciate all the work that has been done to do this, but we're not anywhere near the finish line yet. Gail tweeted, how can you motivate people to become teachers when we exploit teachers by having them teach in the classroom and online simultaneously <laughs> and write curriculum and plan for those two different education styles? Gail writes, we ask too much and give too little. Thank you, Gail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. And, and Gail is pointing out an issue that it has led to the probably the most amount of stress in addition to being nervous about the the virus and so forth and that is in some districts in connecticut not all but but way too many uh, we have been asking teachers to uh, make sure they're attending to the students that are sitting right in front of them in their class and also the 15 to 20 students that are sitting at home in some little box on a, on a, on a, uh, on a monitor it, 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 it's unsustainable. And that's one of the things that has driven our teachers to the greatest amount of stress, which is saying, I, 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 I can't really do it right for both the kids who are sitting right in front of me and the kids who are online. So we are doing our best, working with other stakeholders uh, right now, as a matter of fact, to say, uh, first of all, uh, we, we hope that we don't have to do remote learning uh, uh, over next year. Uh, and second of all, if, if it has to be an option for some folks, uh, then there needs to be dedicated teachers who are only teaching those kids that are on their on their monitors and so forth. And, 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 mm -hmm. and the teacher in the classroom is able to say, um, I'm working with you folks who are sitting right in front of me. Uh, let's get this done. Uh, Jeff, we just have a, a few minutes left, about three minutes, actually. I have to ask you, what is summer going to look like across our state uh, with emphasis on still trying to engage students uh, in the summer months? It's been a rough year. It has been a rough year, and we are hoping that to the extent possible, we can use the summer to re-engage with, uh, with our students. Uh, and that means not bringing them in for a couple of hours of uh, uh, drill and skill uh, in, our, uh, in our classrooms, but providing the kinds of opportunities, camp-like opportunities, art, you know, uh, uh, art appreciation type things, uh, going to uh, uh, perhaps a, a theater production or something like that, connecting to the nature, taking walks and learning about science and math, but, but doing it in a way uh, that clearly uh, is going to engage students rather than turn them off to say, yeah, uh, we, we got to catch up on all the things that didn't happen last year. Yet we can, we can start to do that over the summer, but we need to do it by uh, providing, again, engaging camp-like uh, uh, um, uh, experiences for our folks and making sure that, uh, 
that uh, they're, they're more ready to come back to school than they might otherwise be. And that conversation needs to happen as well in underserved communities where there's such an emphasis on they're falling behind in math and, yep. and, and science and other skills. But kids also need time to, ha- to be children. Right. And a number of us are, are working on this right now in an effort uh, Connecticut's calling Accelerate CT. Uh, we've had a couple of meetings about the different kinds of experiences that we might provide uh, again it's going to take money, but that money is coming from the federal government. It needs to come right, right back into our state to say, "Yep, let's let's construct these kinds of experiences for our kids that are going to help them, you know, readjust to coming back to school full time." Jeff Leak is president of the Connecticut Education Association. It's the largest teachers union in Connecticut. Jeff, we thank you for your time. Thank you, Lucy. Have a great day. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.